Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Amira Haas, who is a correspondent for Haaretz newspaper in Israel. Her publications include Drinking the Sea at Gaza and a collection of articles entitled Reporting from Ramallah, an Israeli Journalist in Occupied Land. She is a recipient of numerous human rights and journalism awards, including the Bruno Kreisky Human Rights Award and in 2003, the UNESCO Press Freedom Award. Amira, welcome to Berkeley. Where were you born? Jerusalem, Israel. And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? Uh, (laughs) uh, They were Jewish Holocaust survivors, members of the Israeli Communist Party. My mother had been a partisan uh, in Yugoslavia against uh, German occupation, but then she was uh, deported to a, a concentration camp. My father was in a ghetto. Um... And I think I was raised in this, um, in their attempt to, personal attempt, an ideological attempt to compensate for a terrible emotional and ideological vacuum and, 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 and family vacuum created after the Second World War with the loss of most of their family and friends and, and, and people and history and life. Uh, to compensate this with... Um, with the hope that you can work on for a better world where equality, uh, the principle of equality is recognized as, uh, as a basic for human life. Uh, in reading the introduction uh, uh, to your book, uh, 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 Drinking the Sea at Gaza, you, you talk about your family, and, and I get uh, the sense of both a legacy of loss, of, of looking back, but also of, of resistance. Is, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, only that the lo- loss is not that you look back and you feel the loss. The loss is always there. You don't have to look back to feel the loss. It's in everyday day's life. If, if your brothers and sisters and beloved, other beloved ones have all been uh, uh, murdered by the Nazi system, then it's, the loss is ever-present. Mm-hmm. But yes, and your mother was a writer. She she actually uh, had a diary about. Right. Uh, tell us a little about that. She wrote the diary in the concentration camp, which was already a, a, a penal a death penal uh, penalty if if she was found writing it. Her her uh, friends or, or or the other inmates in the barrack were covering for her when she was writing. Uh, she wrote on pieces of paper that she found uh, who knows where. And actually, she described uh, life there. She didn't talk so much about herself. She made kind of analysis of her, of what was happening to people around her. She was also teaching children. She and it was another uh, forbidden activity for peop- for inmates in this concentration camp, Bergen Belsen. And she taught children uh, because she felt that they needed to be taken care of in in this hell. And but it was for her. It was like a, a, a way of fighting, for sure, to 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 have these both forbidden activities. Where were you educated? Jerusalem and then Tel Aviv. And and what university you went to? The university? so I went to Hebrew University and then Tel Aviv University. But I was stuck with my with my MA studies. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and what what uh, first you you did some human rights work, but then uh, then you became a journalist. 
when I was already working for Haaretz as a text editor, I, was, I needed something for my neshume, as you say in Hebrew, for my soul. And I volunteered, it was in the middle of the first intifada, I volunteered in a group called Workers' Hotline. We assisted Palestinian workers mainly, whose rights were violated by Israeli employers. And they were not represented properly by, Israeli trade un- by the Israeli trade union. So we started this advocacy group and also active, uh, active uh, assistance in, in the sense of approaching, approaching employers and uh, either through lawyers or directly in order to get uh, for these people what they deserved. And, and is this where you first developed your consciousness of, of the plight of the Palestinians? No, or is it no. go, goes back yes, further? Yes, it goes, goes look, I, I grew up in a political family and political surrounding. I've never, I mean, it was, uh, I was active in the Israeli left wing for years. So occupation, we, I mean, I've been involved in acts against occupation. But I always thought that uh, our activity should be in the Israeli street with Israelis and to explain to them and to try and, and, and uh, promote the understanding that occupation is wrong. For this, I didn't know, need to go and meet with or, or, or experience Palestinian occupation. But there was a change with the first intifada that I felt that all this kind of political activism led nowhere. And uh, with this, this activity of mine with Workers' Hotline, I, was, I came to know Gaza especially, and it was like discovering a new world because, you know, I, I, I didn't have prejudice, I think, but I didn't have much knowledge about ordinary life there, uh, more theoretical knowledge I had. So it was an opportunity to have uh, more detailed knowledge, and I was fascinated by people and the society. I found it a very, very warm society, very welcoming society, very resilient society. So let, let's talk, before we, we talk about the occupation and, and the suicide bombers, let's talk a little about uh, the way you see your craft, the methodology you use, and so on. Uh, 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 you, in your work, have actually gone to live in the communities that you write about. Tell us about that and, and that choice of, uh, 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 as a way to do your craft as a journalist. Yeah. I think it's so natural, you know, for, for a journalist to do so. Uh, if I were asked to cover French affairs, I would go and live in Paris, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, and travel a lot in France, not write about France from Germany. So this is uh, the basic, uh, basic, I think, in journalistic work, in, in uh, this sort of journalistic work. Um, then also, I guess, I have this maybe uh, research cu- curiosity, which I could satisfy by living there, because what it is is an ongoing research, so I'm very lucky. Mm-hmm. I always I discover a new society. Uh, I, I discover all kinds of facets of this society by living in it, but still by being some sort of an observer. I'm not uh, I'm not part of the society in the in the real sense of the word. Of course, you become sort of, uh, but you. I'm always in this position, and it's interesting this position of observant while you live in the society. Mm-hmm. So it is. Uh, some have, some have compared my work with anthropological work, mm-hmm. uh, maybe more progressive anthropological work. Not the. Um, so this is this for me has been I think very important also personally. This I have I do have an obsession to get. Uh, 
to get the taste of the flavor of things from very mu- from inside. When I was 20, I lived four or five months in Romania. It was under Ceausescu. And I believe that um, I have this need, I felt this uh, philosophical responsibility, I would tell you, because I came from a communist family. I didn't have any illusions about the regimes in Eastern Europe. And I felt because I come from such a family and from such ideological background, I have some sort of a philosophical responsibility to taste life Mm -hmm. in the mutation or in this this terrible terrible dictatorship that evolved in in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. You you wrote, uh, you, you wrote, uh, I think in the introduction to the Gaza book, it has always been my conviction that history is made more in the currents of ordinary life than it is by rulers and their ceremonies. Yeah. So you're, you're implementing that. Basically. I guess, no, I mean, I, I referred there to why I was not interested in the coming of Abu Mazen to Gaza mm-hmm. after he had two years, uh, I don't know, one of the series of these uh, feuds and, uh, this, and, and disagreements that he had with Arafat, and then he came all of a sudden. So everybody was very interested in this, but for me it just looked like a boring ritual of people who think themselves the, at the top of, uh, I don't know, of the Olympus and... I prefer to be with friends who had, who made their own, made the own history. Uh, I want, I, ca- I can't resist asking you this question, and that is because you 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 come from a, a, a Marxist, uh, communist uh, tradition. Uh, uh, so what what is the relation of theory to observation? Uh, and facts in your work. I, I mean, I, clearly you've, you've headed, as you've already discussed, toward the notion of, of, of what, what is the real situation? What are people's lives really like? But, but how do you think about theory in the back of your mind? I think it exists in the sense, I mean, I always see the class conflict. I always see class, class uh, tensions. Uh, I don't even have to theorize about it. It's so self-evident. Uh, I think that's why I was very early on very critical of the Palestinian Authority because I saw the way that they were creating new classes uh, uh, in all sorts of corrupted and corruptive uh, ways in order to build up a a stronghold uh, which supports the Oslo process. So I saw this. At the same time, I saw the Israeli uh, ongoing colonization very clearly. And I saw it was done in order to establish Israeli Jewish privileges in the, in the area. But then because I'm very aware of the basic, uh, this, uh, my theoretical inbuilt assumptions, I mean, I cannot even uh, help it. It's not that I'm a scholar in Marxism, I'm not. Um, I, I was very careful to be very, very, to collect a lot of information. And I was very, very careful when people started telling me about uh, Arafat, Arafat's people starting to accumulate their capital in the occupied territories while most of the people went through a process of impover- impoverishment. I was very careful and, and di- didn't immediately write about it because hmm. I felt no, because I'm inclined to believe this, I have to collect hmm. more information. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, I'm sometimes more careful about it and, and because I'm aware of it. Uh, tell me a little about uh, uh, your, your craft as a writer. Uh, uh, your pieces are beautifully written. 
they if uh, they uh, are comprehensive in their detail there's a uh, there's an eye for things that people ignore how, how do you do this how did you come to do it so well thank you <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's uh, not uh, um, not the basic requirement of journalism so it is but no, well I guess uh, that's my um, I think sometimes I see as if I see a film and then I feel I have to describe the film in words hmm. so I want if I were a filmmaker that's how I would have done it with pictures with um, so that's my way then also of course I don't only write features I write op-eds and I know that I have to to have to give up the analysis to, to show to expose the analysis, but I prefer to expose it through examples and through examples from daily life and not to burden with slogans. I, I'm trying to avoid slogans as much as possible because I live in a society, both Israeli and Palestinian, that is really uh, 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 overcrowded with slogans mm -hmm. and copyright, you know, one sentence uh, exclamations and uh, I'm I'm very I'm appalled by it. And and it sounds like you keep many stories in your mind at one time and and choose when you actually uh, 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 write it up and and publish it. So you're not you're you're not driven uh, by the headlines as you make yeah. as as many journalists are. I don't need to because I don't cover now daily news. Yeah. So I know I f I know some things are structural and uh, they might not get the first uh, uh, headline news or headlines but they are structural and they are develop it's a certain development within Israeli policy or within Palestinian tactics so I pay attention to this much more to what seems to catch the attention of everybody at a certain moment and then dies after two three days Mm -hmm. Let's talk now a little about uh, uh, the Israeli occupation. Uh, 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 you have uh, delineated in an essay in Palestinian studies the the structure of Israeli uh, uh, rule. Uh, explain it to us. What 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 are the uh, uh, the uh, byproducts of the strategy that Israel is employing to control the territories? Let me first say this, that occupation is not necessarily a military occupation. Occupation means when one people and one government, a foreign government, decides about the future and scope of development and chances of development of another people which has not elected this, sort, this government. So this is, for me, this I came to understand what occupation is, especially in the years of Oslo, the Oslo process, where everybody thought, which everybody thought was the peace, peace process, and I felt this, this ongoing uh, uh, and ever-intensifying Israeli policy of control over Palestinian life. Even though the army was not directly inside, uh, was not inside Palestinian populated areas, and even though there were negotiations between Palestinian leaders and Israeli, the Israeli government. So the two main manifestations of this control and Israeli persistent and successful attempt to uh, dictate Palestinian future were uh, these two means were 
it is twofold. Um, one is the policy of colonization or of settlement, whereby Israel got hold of much more land within Gaza and the West Bank, also during the Oslo process, uh, made sure that actually it created a infra the infrastructure of a one state in the, great, in the one country between the land and the river. So it was one infrastructure of very good highways, roads, um, and se connecting settlements, remote settlements with Israeli mainland, establishing the same sewage system, water system, um, electric reed, education system, whatever, of Israel in these remote places in the occupied territories, but an infrastructure for Jews alone. Mm -hmm. Now, in between this infrastructure, this grid of roads and settlements, you had Palestinian enclaves, which were allotted uh, sort of self-rule, but uh, the self-rule was in itself very limited because you could not expand in your natural reserve and uh, uh, territorial reserve because this was taken by the Israelis in the time of the peace process, so-called peace process. So this was one. The second thing to control Palestinian development was through a new system introduced first in 91, which it was practically a pass system like the one we knew, we knew in South, apartheid South Africa, which meant that Palestinians, um, were, their right of, for freedom of movement was taken from them, was not respected. In reverse to what had happened between 67 to, to 91, that in spite of the occupation, in spite of all kinds of attacks against Israelis by Palestinians during these previous years, uh, they were granted fr freedom of movement in the whole country with certain exceptions. Now all of them were not granted, were allowed to move freely, except of a few categories which were chosen by Israel in different times and were granted the, this uh, very limited freedom of movement. Now with the years this system has perfected. So it involves more and more people who need permits and in Smaller and, in smaller and smaller areas. If at the beginning you needed a permit, a travel permit, from Gaza to Israel or from Gaza to the West Bank and vice versa, you now need a permit to go from one city in the West Bank to another city in the West Bank. In certain areas in the West Bank and Gaza, people who live near settlements need permits to go out of their own area mm -hmm. in special hours through special gates. So you have, so actually what Israel has been doing during the last 12 years is um, fragmentizing not only Palestinian territory but Palestinian population into certain categories which you characterize by their accessibility to the privilege of freedom of movement. Mm -hmm. So, so what, what you're saying is, is that the reality uh, the, the actual lives of Palestinians, the actual rules that I Israel is imposing is, is very different in some ways from the general perception. Because all of this was happening uh, at a time when the o Oslo Accords seemed to be a peace process moving toward uh, a final uh, status in which Palestine would have its own, its own state. Exactly, exactly. It was process which guaranteed that the final status would be a very enfeebled Palestinian political entity. 
And, and, and we are, you, you are also saying that in the course of this process, Israel through the, in, in, a, in a sense, through the processes of, of, of its rule, was creating facts, creating realities that in, in a, a way uh, really narrowly limited the, the future place where the Palestinian state could be. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now I guess the the uh, uh, talk a little about you. You say, and 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 I think what's very interesting is your writing. You you actually uh, focus on time and space in this process. And and if I can quote from you, you, say, time and space together make room in one's world, not only materially to accomplish one's tasks and activities, but at the level of the spirit, enabling both the individual and the community to breathe, to develop, to prosper, to create. Space in the occupied territories has been gradually but ruthlessly encroached upon for more than 30 years as more and more land has been expropriated. That's what you just described. You know, this is a kind of a theoretical statement. Give, give us an example in everyday life. I think I read recently a column of yours about children trying to get through the fence. T- tell yeah. us a story like yeah. that, to, because I think what, what's really interesting, if I, if I can sermonize here, is when we deal with these issues from afar, or maybe even in Israel, we don't think about their implications for everyday life, but you are addressing that. Of course. I'll, give you a, uh, I'll share with you again this story of, of a village called Jbara. It's, uh, it found itself locked between the new built fence that Israel, the security fence, and the former green line. And, and the, this fence, we should explain, is a fence that Israel is building yes. uh, 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 f- allegedly for security purposes exactly. to separate the Palestinians from the Israelis. Exactly, and to prevent from terrorists, uh, from suicide bombers infiltrating into Israel. But the fence is not built accord- a- along the green line, along the border of 67, but it's built in many places deep into Palestinian territory in order to incorporate Israeli settlements. So actually it is, it is upgrading the former, uh, the former uh, border and it is actually expropriating land from Palestinian, ter- from Palestinian community and it locks in people. So people in there, in these areas, are not allowed to go freely to Israel and are, cannot go freely to the Palestinian, to Palestinian territory. So in this village, only 300 people. You have 100 children studying in a b- nearby village, which is actually the mother village of this little village. So the students have to go to this other village? For Through school. the fence. Through the fence. The fence has a, has a gate. So sometimes it is being opened, sometimes it is not being opened. Now there are some teachers teaching in a nearby Palestinian city called Tulkarem. So they have to cross from another place through, a Palestinian, through an Israeli checkpoint with soldiers. Sometimes they are let through, sometimes they are not let through. Now the villagers need to have a special, actually a special identity card, additional to what they have, which um, which is the authorization, Israeli authorization for them to live where they live. This is a very new issue. Uh, because they live in this area, which was declared closed area, but only to Palestinians. Jews can go there and live there, mm-hmm. but Palestinians cannot. Only those who live there, 
are allowed to stay provided they get this authorization from the Israeli authorities, Israeli military. Now, a few have already uh, were already told that they are not allowed to stay there because some of them were were active, politically active years ago and were in Israeli jails or so on and so forth. But this is their land, this is their home, this is their family, and now they are actually supposed to leave it. And um, this is this is something which is not. It, is, it happened in a different scale, so far larger scale in the West, in Gaza Strip. The same thing. You have areas in the Gaza Strip where people cannot uh, need to go through fences and through gates twice a day, once a day, sometimes not, sometimes yes. They cannot go with their cars. They're not allowed to bring in things. They cannot take ship. They cannot market their uh, agricultural uh, agricultural products. So many people have been pushed to leave these areas, which are not by surprise uh, the, the only vacant areas in the Gaza Strip and where there are some of the big settlements mm -hmm. situated. So you see a slow, it's a policy in the name of security which uh, forces people, many people, to leave their own land and own homes if they want to conduct some decent life. And if they insist on staying there, they are doomed to impoverished, impoverished life uh, and pushed into charity life. They are subjects of charity and they are not living of their own uh, work. And, and so this combination of the, the past system uh, and, uh, and of the infrastructure to support the Israeli settlements leads to, to everyday problems so that for uh, uh, an Israeli to travel on the highways that were built for the Israeli settlements, a trip could take hypothetically 30 minutes on a freeway like we have in the Bay Area. But on the other hand, a Palestinian who's not entitled to go on these roads, could, the, the same trip could take several hours. Yes, and or he could not leave at all. Yeah. So what I call it is not only the grab, the robbery of land, but you have a robbery of time. Mm -hmm. So Palestinians' time has been robbed in the last 13 years because you have to wait for a permit and you don't get it, then you have to wait again, then you waste time waiting at a checkpoint, then you waste time in uh, wa uh, uh, giving, uh, submitting another request for a permit, then you waste time trying to go in, by in all kinds of small dangerous bypass roads. And time is a means of production. Time mm -hmm. is so precious for one's development internal development, community development, and this has been robbed by the past system, this very important uh, 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 means of life of every, pal of every person, not just Palestinian, has been robbed of them. And sometimes I think it's more, it's more precious than land, because land you can get back or some, some one way or the other. The lost time you will never get back. And, and it must lead to a kind of a, a sense of helplessness, of frustration that, that eats away at the soul, I guess, is the only way to... It's, you know, total strangulation. And the thing is that people are, are, not, even made aw are not even that aware of how huge this loss of time is. Mm -hmm. uh, but I see how they, because of this loss of time and loss of space, because they don't have freedom of movement, people have lowered their, um, their fan of expectations. Mm -hmm. They are, are not expecting much of their lives because they know that they will be disappointed. You cannot plan and go 
to see friends. And I'm even talking about this before these terrible times of, of uh, armed, armed clashes between Israelis and Israeli assaults against Palestinians. Um, people have lowered so much their expectations of themselves and they restrict themselves to their narrow surrounding, family, work, home, family, work, home, nothing more than that. You don't even go in Gaza now, even the sea, half of the shore is blocked for, for Palestinians. You, you live 400 meters away from the shore and you can't reach the sea because there are settlements and the security of the settlements comes first. Help us understand how Israel came to uh, adopt this strategy. Uh, I, I think in your readings I get the sense that these were ad hoc decisions initially with regard to, to uh, 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 control that have in essence turned into something else. Yeah, you know, it's something that I'm always asking myself. To what extent it had been a master plan from the start? I'm still, you know, oscillating between the two, two uh, um, possibilities, or how much it was taken in 91 as a, an ad hoc policy, uh, meant especially to um, meant especially to contain the, in the first intifada. Because in 91 the first intifada came to some sort of a standstill uh, in terms of Palestinian measures and ability to, to uh, continue a mess or inability to continue a mess, uh, mess uprising. And the Israeli repression came to a standstill because at that time Israel acknowledged the status of its status in humanitarian terms of an occupying power. So it had responsibility on the welfare of the civilian uh, population. That's why it could not bomb Palestinians. It could not repress their uprising by dropping uh, one-ton bombs on, in, on civilian uh, areas or by killing every day five, six, seven people. Um, it, so it had to confine to bureaucratic logistic means. And the past system was a sort of uh, such, bureaucratic, uh, such bureaucratic means. It try to contain Palestinian uprising from spilling over into Israel proper. And also I think that it allowed Israel much more control because people were subject to all these extra documents and then you can control people's movements and then you contain their activities. But with time I think, and with especially with the Oslo years, um, they understood how you, they could control economical life, how they could actually lead what I see now and I'm there are economists who say the same, lead this sort of war, economical war of attrition vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian Authority and thus enforce them to have all kind of, uh, to accept all kind of concessions during the talks, during the negotiations about the interim status and then the final status. Then I think it evolved, I don't know at what stage, I mean, I think very early on, it has evolved as a very good, as a means to achieve demographic separation, not geographic separation, not mm -hmm. political separation, but demographic separation, which means that Israel is still in control all, all over the territory where two peoples live, 
but it is separating the two peoples. And then you, it separates, but for the sake of one people, of mm. one demographic group. Let's talk a little now about the suicide bombers, because in, in this, in this uh, uh, recent phase, uh, uh, the last couple of years of the second intifada, uh, this has become uh, a, a, uh, uh, a series of events that, that have shattered our ability to actually understand uh, you know what is going on in in that part of the world, and has obviously been tied to uh, the U.S. policy and war against uh, terrorism. I and mean, links have been made, whether they are justified or not. How do you uh, uh, account, or let's put it this way, help us understand how suicide bombers emerged in this conflict on the Palestinian side? You know, the first suicide bombings which occurred in Palestinian territory, not in Israel, were in 93. This was 10 years after the first suicide bombings in Lebanon. Which means for 10 years, Palestinians, who are mostly Muslims, did not think of, uh, of endorsing such a way. Their fight was always based on, on hope for life, not for death. Now, 93 is two years after... Uh, the the um, imposition of the pass system and of the closure policy. I think it has to do this this kind of, of you feel this sort of impotence, this this terrible sort of impotence that Palestinians felt in the times when their space was reduced. Uh, and this was only 93, and this was three or four uh, attempts inside the occupied territories, Gaza and the West Bank. The source, and this was against mostly military targets and settlers, but who are seen by Palestinians as military, military, um, military, not as civilians. But the first suicide bombings inside Israel were in '94, and these were one month or so, or two months after the murder, the the. the conducted by a Jewish-American uh, physician or uh, doctor in Me'arat HaMachpelah, in, uh, in Hebron, uh, where he killed 29 Muslim worshippers in their holy place. So this was a revenge one time, and then the revenge started, it, be, it started to be emulated by Hamas and by Jihad against Israel, always saying that this is retaliation against, uh, against uh, Israeli actions and killings of civilians. But it had a clear political motive on the part of Hamas, and this was to, to foil the Oslo agreements or to uh, push to a corner the Palestinian Authority. I have no, uh, I mean, this is, I think, uh, is obvious. So it had a political motive, and especially internal political motive, the struggle within the Palestinian Authority inside. So, so that the factions among the Palestinian, within the Palestinian leadership, in their competition with each other for popular support, see this as a tool. It was a tool then. Yeah. By Hamas. Yes. In this intifada, it became a tool in the competition between no, everybody. Right. So they are using these factions, are using people's 
disgust with life, total loss of hope, the need for revenge because so many Palestinian civilians had been killed during the last three years, almost unnoticed by the entire world. So they feel this need to take revenge, and they feel this need to get out, even for a moment, from their uh, captivated uh, and and, and, uh, very limited space vis-à-vis Israeli military technology, and to be omnipotent even for one moment. Mm So they are ready to die for this, because they don't see any point in, in, in living. But then the factions are using this readiness, not because they strategize and they think that this will bring them uh, uh, closer to independence, but because they compete with each other on their uh, uh, popularity within the Palestinian population. Mm-hmm. So, so let's let's uh, uh, broaden our understanding of this. So, what you have is a, 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 a hypothetical person whose family's land is taken away, or who loses a relative, uh, or who or, sees uh, so much blood around him, the, yeah. right? Yeah. Who who is led to kind of unbelievable. Uh, depression and frustration and becomes a target of opportunity for factions among the the, uh, uh, the Palestinian leadership who want to use him in this way yeah. uh, to to strike back at Israel. Very often they don't have to work hard to recruit him yeah. or her. Yeah. Very often such people voluntarily look for someone and tell we would like to make a, a suicide attack. Yeah. Yeah. So they come themselves very often so, but but so the 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 mo- it's it's it, from uh, our side of of the water. It, it's hard to understand uh, what would lead a person to take this act, and w- w- one is, is not sure as to whether they are motivated by religion, by going to heaven. Talk a little about that. For me, as a secular person, it's also very difficult to. On the one hand, to believe or to to uh, understand uh, when people do talk about heaven, um, so I need the help of my Palestinian friends and acquaintances who might not be very secular but not either not very religious. They say most of them say that that going to heaven or the religious motivations of being shaheed, being martyr and getting, that's why, eternal life in heaven, these are not the main motivations. They only come last. Mm -hmm. Or they are being uh, adopted because it is accepted as the norm. Uh, The real motivations are those personal community ones of not, even not personally in the sense that one, uh, one's life is a total wreck. No. We see that many of those who, were, uh, who went to explode themselves uh, had careers or started to have careers, were not, they were not coming from the poorest families, uh, enrolled into universities. So it's not people who were really uh, a total, total loss uh, in Western term, in norms. Uh, or, or even Palestinian norms. So they uh, felt they represent the society in its uh, despair. And they want to do something, some use of this despair, revenge. Mm-hmm. So it is a very, it is a very delicate uh, interplay here between the personal despair, but not, very, not immediate despair, and the political community despair. 
then I think that many of them got strength by becoming more observant, by going to uh, to to mosque to the mosque, by praying five times a day, by reading Quran over and over again. It's only then. Some of them I know started with the Quran at the beginning of the Intifada when they saw so much bloodshed, so many of their neighbors and friends and relatives getting killed, civilians getting killed by Israeli soldiers. Uh, so they found compensation and solace with, the, with reading the Quran. So it strengthened them. But this was not the motivation, it was maybe the support. At the same time, you know, I spoke, as I told yesterday in, 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 at, in my lecture, I did speak to one person from Hamas, uh, who eventually was killed, not in a suicide attack. He was uh, uh, always going out vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israeli military, military uh, uh, tanks and uh, soldiers, and eventually he was killed in one of those battles. He with his gun and uh, uh, invading tanks in his neighborhood. And uh, we had talked a year before he had been he was killed, and he saw himself as a as a candidate for suicide because this was suicide to fight against Israeli army is almost suicide because mm. the proportions are such that you you are always getting killed and uh, <coughs> he didn't mention uh, religious motivations at all only the national ones only the seeing how many of his friends got killed. And he was a very educated person, so, and also very religious, uh, theoretically religious. And he didn't use the religion as the first motivation for him at all. It gave him support, but not motivation. We've talked about the Israeli policies of occupation and now the, 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 the response on the Palestinian side from, from some parts of the Palestinian community with the use of, of suicide bombers. In, in both of these cases, there seems, that is on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side, there seems to be a failure of leadership, of a kind of responsible leadership uh, that sees both the implications of policies and, and, and uh, the dynamic of the situation. Let, let, let's look at both sides, and I want to ask you about it. First on the Israeli side, it seems to be the case that even labor governments uh, who uh, initiated and uh, tried to implement the Oslo process continued to build settlements and that that was a, a real failure of leadership. Do you agree I with it? Not at all. You, not you, at all. Not at all. It, you don't agree? No. no okay. No. That you say failure because you assume that what was their, what their main goal was to have peace with the Palestinians okay. and just peace with <laughs> the Palestinians. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that their main goal was to guarantee a stronger Israel, bigger Israel, and an enfeebled Palestinian uh, political entity. And they were very successful. So it's a very responsible leadership if you think that this was their main goal. Uh, so, so that so that all sides in the Israeli, or most all the sides in the Israeli debate, are are really committed to enlarging the size of Israel through settlements. I think so. I think that this is this has been uh, made uh, clear during the Oslo process, mm -hmm. especially and not before, because before you could always say security, bargaining chip, whatever. But during the Oslo times, when everybody expected Israel to freeze all settlements, 
No, it only was only expanded, and since Rabin, all through the all through governments, mm-hmm. so they were very successful. They were, it's not a failure of leadership. So, so then, in in, in it's con- a failure of Israeli constituencies that did not support these policies. Okay, but let themselves believe that their leadership is going towards peace. Okay, and why? So, so why? So, so why did these constituencies then? Uh, fail and seeing what was going on and try to build a, a political coalition to oppose that. Yeah. Uh, I guess that many people wanted to believe that uh, it is possible to break the spell of, of conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think that people were very optimistic with the Oslo process. They thought that their demands of years for two-state solution and uh, talk with the Palestinians and recognition of the Palestinian people, etc., were coming true under labor. And uh, they just felt, oh, we were right all these years, and now there is a government which acknowledges we were right. Mm -hmm. So they paid very little attention to the reality on the ground. So I think on part, you can explain it psychologically. Not, not, uh, uh, not attributing bad motivations to these people. But others saw that peace was possible with settlements. Until 91, we were made to believe that peace was not possible with settlements. Mm-hmm. Then with the Oslo process, after Arafat actually signed a contra- uh, an accord where Israel is not being demanded, is not being demanded to stop all settlement activity, mm-hmm. uh, so Israeli saw that peace with settlements was possible. So maybe Palestinians are satisfied with it. And uh, after all, the settlement activity was beneficial for many segments of Israeli society. So I think this is why these constituencies uh, failed to feel to understand the discrepancy between the promise of stabi- stability and and normal life in a, in a state, and the reality of uh, permanent colonization. Let's talk about the Palestinian leadership then. How do we account for their failure? And, and I, I hear you having said two things. One is that important parts of that leadership uh, uh, sold out to the Israelis in, in the... In the uh, uh, Oslo process. That's my word, not your word, but, but compromise themselves, mm-hmm. uh, creating a class system almost among uh, that leadership. Uh, and, and then secondly, uh, I think I, I've heard you say that they have failed by the abuse of their own people, especially in the, in the case of, of the suicide bombers, where they see them as, as tools for jockeying for position vis-a-vis the other factions. And the it's cost. not true about the suicide bombings. I don't think that this, the uh, Palestinian leadership sent suicide bombers. Yeah. It maybe did not dare to stop it on time uh, in this intifada, but it did not use the suicide bombers. It's the factions and not the, the factions of some of them in opposition to the leadership and some Fatah uh, groupings, but which had loose connection with Arafat. So it's not... The, the failure, but it is true that it's on the vis-a-vis Israel, it was a failure to correctly analyze Israeli motivations and to conduct better strategy of negotiation. I think it's partly the naivete of this Palestinian leadership, this also human need to see a change, 
I do believe, in spite of all what is said in Israeli and American propaganda, that they uh, didn't intend to have peace with Israel. Let's not forget they were the, the, the weaker party. And I think that they were very sincere in their uh, uh, readiness for a two-state solution as a final status solution. Uh, but they failed to see Israeli, to learn Israeli me uh, methods. Arafat and Arafat's people didn't consult with people inside the occupied territories who had known Israelis better. They didn't know when they discussed, when they signed on the de uh, declarations of principles, they didn't even know how a settlement looked like. They mm -hmm. thought it was military distant uh, uh, positions, so mm -hmm. that's why they did not bother to insist on it. Um, then their whole, they were not sold out so much as they were, as they let themselves be pampered by Israeli methods, very colonialist methods of uh, pampering an elite mm -hmm. with all sorts of privileges, especially privileges of freedom of movement, which allowed the Palestinian Authority to build up a sort of entourage which benefited economically from the process. And that's why it gave its political support to the process, participated in the negoti political negotiations. So what you had, people who were economically dependent on the Israelis because of the privileges endowed to them by the Israelis, were also conducting the negotiation, political negotiations with the Israelis about how big the settlements will be, I mean, how, how quickly the, 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 the Israeli withdrawal redeployment will be and how big the settlements will be or not be. So this was a catch here, uh, which you can, which the byproduct is what you feel being sold out. But I don't think it was intentional. Mm -hmm. um, and many of them did believe that if they if they uh, if they serve Israeli security demands for some time, they are guaranteeing the future and the stability of a Palestinian society. Uh, this is it. Now, class society, it, was all, it has always been, Palestinian has always been class society. But the Palestinian Authority, in, internally, it had the responsibility for the welfare of the people. Now, instead of dedicating and developing this, the, 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 the development of human beings inside, it invested a lot in all kind of symbolic, uh, in symbolic uh, aspects of life. Uh, which serve the grand, grandeur of the authority. It, uh, it, it, it allocated much of its budget to security organizations, multiply security organizations because Arafat needs this multiplicity in order to control. Uh, they did not allow, they did not develop enough uh, uh, health system, education system, did not see the person, the human beings, in order to use their own opportunities to develop. I think this was their main failure, and it stems out from the fact that they, are, they were not really elected, they came from outside, they were very indifferent to the people, they come from very, with, from very undemocratic traditions. And this was a major failure. I think that if they cared more for their people, and were more attentive to people's demands uh, internally, uh, they would have been stronger vis-a-vis -vis Israel in the negotiation table. What, what is the uh, role, you think, that uh, uh, you as a writer...
can play in, in elevating consciousness of these dynamics? And, and in what way does that, in the long term, to contribute to a, to a change in the situation? Um, sometimes I think that I'm only writing for the archives. <laughs> that in five, ten years people will say, oh, she wrote uh, so-and-so. I mean, it's... Uh, look, I didn't have influence. It's, uh, I've been writing about, uh, I mean, discrepancy between the reality and, and uh, facts on the ground during the Oslo period. I've been writing extensively in my paper and then my book. People read me, but somehow it did not sink in. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, people did not, most of the people, I could say, did not get the, the message. Because it's not for one writer to change, uh, to change mm -hmm. things. You need a movement, you need a social movement. A certain activity in the street of people who voice out clearly. And then this, in, this uh, uh, interplay between voices in the media and voices outside in the streets in in, in social activities can make a, can make some sort of a change or can be heard when you are one voice then i was you know i was considered a radical extremist uh, pessimist i don't know what uh, uh, cassandra <laughs> yeah cassandra. Jo no cassandra is uh, can be uh, joy killer, uh, killing, uh, joy killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always spoiling the party. Yeah. So I was told. I was told by my editors sometimes. Oh, we are. Everybody is talking about how Gazans are happy, but you, but you only tell us about pass system and uh, travel permits and all this. <laughs> so why do you? Mm -hmm. uh, you. So I was even told not by, uh, but somebody that I don't have perspective because I live in Gaza. Mm -hmm. So it's a new definition of, of uh, mm -hmm. you know, of journalism. So no, I don't think I made. On the contrary, I mean, I'm, I'm only, I'm only very, I'm only very frustrated because I voiced so many clear and very logical voices among Palestinians, uh, which warned Israelis about the coming explosion if Israel continues this policy of pushing into a surrender agreement, a, a, a surrender arrangement, and. Uh, so, so one, one final question. What, what is your advice to, to students who, who are interested in this region and, and want to prepare for some future that might evolve a relationship with that region, but also people uh, in, in, in other communities that have an interest in the region that uh, uh, have to view events there from afar, and many of whom may not uh, uh, read your writing on a, a regular basis and, and actually probably uh, uh, don't and, and are, are driven in their understanding by what they read in the, the, the headlines in the English-speaking press, which is, is maybe less than adequate in describing the real situation there. Advice to them. Well, first to read other things than the... <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> than the read Haaretz online. No, Haaretz not only, not, not only. Okay, yeah. there are all kind of also, uh, all kind of non, uh, you know, less, uh, all kind of messages, email. Not everything is always accurate, but they have to be very skeptical about what they read first. And then always to meet people with... Uh, region and maybe try to see Al Jazeera. I mean, things which are not only Western, uh, uh, from a Western point of view, uh, news. This is one. 
um, then to remember, and I think it's true about every place, that, that uh, to be very skeptical about official versions, very skeptical. I think that uh, power, uh, any power, has to be suspected everywhere and has to be monitored. And I think this is the main task of journalism. So they have to look for those kind of writings which monitor power, not uh, 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 and which which describe the situation situations not from the eyes of uh, of the ruler mm-hmm. only. And, and I, I get the sense that that you really think that uh, and and believe both in word and indeed that that truth emerges from sort of really understanding, describing, and and being immersed in the reality that that you're writing about. Yeah, I believe that uh, what I've been describing is the truth. That I don't believe that it makes much change and uh, much influence. Uh, I mean. It does not. Uh, it does not preach to the non-converted. It mm-hmm. does not reach the non-converted. It pre- it reaches the converted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, I believe this is uh, this is true. What I've been writing. Amira, on that note, I want to thank you very much for uh, taking the time to come to the Berkeley campus, but also being a, a guest today on our program. Thank you very and much. And thank you for an interesting talk. <laughs> and thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. Mm-hmm.